Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 2 Kings. Uh, recently, I've been reading through the books of Kings and Chronicles, and uh, I don't know about you, but I really, really enjoy those two books. Really, all of the historical books from Joshua all the way to Esther, they're some of my favorites. And one of the reasons why I, I enjoy them so much is because they cover entire generations of God's people. When you read the New Testament, you get one generation. When you read the historical books, uh, you get about 50. So they go from, they go from uh, generations of God's people under the height of their power under King David to their absolute lowest when they were in exile. You have some of the greatest generations of God's people where it seems that the whole nation is going to be faithful. They're seeking the Lord, even against insurmountable odds they're seeking Him. And then you're shocked to see just how quickly those great generations can give way to some of the worst in the history of God's people, where all of the blessing that their parents had is thrown off and they rush after idols. You see God in these books dealing with His people, dealing with the nations over the course of almost a thousand years. And it's, there, there's a lot to, to learn here in these books, a lot to mine from these books about God, about His patience, His mercy, His justice. Learn about righteousness and what it means to be God's people, what it means to live in a fallen world. And so I want to look to these books this morning. And specifically, I want to look at the reign of the longest ruling king of Judah. He came to power after a time of great revival and political prosperity under his father when he was only 12 years old. And we find the record of his kingship in 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21, starting in verse 1 and going on to verse 16. 2 Kings 21, 1-16 Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother was named Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshipped the host of heaven and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made and set in the house of the Lord and set in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. 
and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites did, those who were before him, and he has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judea such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day that their fathers came up out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh has shed very much innocent blood until he has filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to commit, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a guide to us, Lord, a lamp unto our feet, even here, Lord. We see so much of how you work and how you deal with people. And I pray, Lord, that you would take the truth of your word this morning and that you would imprint it on our hearts, carve it into our hearts, Lord, like a sculptor with a stone that we would not forget but would remember, Lord, what you have done in your word. Lord, there is treasure here beyond the greatest gold mines in this world. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see it. Help us to know what you would have us to know, to believe what you would have us to believe, to live how you would have us to live, Lord, to worship and honor you just a little bit better because we know you just a little bit more than when we came in here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that today. Reveal yourself to us through the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach. Lord, the words, words are not enough, but your spirit is at work. And when he is at work, Lord, he can do mighty and awesome things. And so we offer ourselves, our words, our songs to you as worship this morning. Lord, please be pleased with our offering. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen your people, that you would glorify your name, that you would be with the preaching of your word, that you would bring in those who don't know you, and that, Lord, you would be at work in this place today. It's to you we look and to you we trust. Amen. I have a question. Do bad people go to heaven? Do bad people go to heaven? Now, we know, we know repentant people, those who have, have put their hope and their trust in Christ, they go to heaven. We know that, but... What kind of people do that? Good people? People who are good enough? 
people who are, you know, they're at least trying to get there. They're, they're searching for something. What kind of people believe? Well, we all know that no one is good enough. In fact, we know that no one is good at all. We know that self-righteousness can keep people out of the kingdom. Pride will keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. And we often spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of words persuading people who think they're good that they are not good and that they still fall short of the glory of God. They still sin. And the punishment of a single sin, just one, is hell forever. And we know that it's not those who are good enough who are saved because good enough isn't good enough. I mean, you can try, you can strive, you can stretch, you can give your life to trying to balance the, the moral scales. It's not going to work, not before God. No amount of good deeds can do a single wrong. And if anyone would get to heaven, anyone, they must realize this, that they're not good and humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and call on Him for mercy. But what about those who aren't even good enough? What about those who don't even try? What about those who are just plain bad people? And they know it, or they don't know it. They think they're good, but they're really bad. And they don't care. They don't care to do better. They don't care to balance the scales. They don't care about heaven or hell. They don't care about the direction that their life is going. Instead, they love what is evil. They love what is wicked. They want to sin unashamedly, and they wear themselves out pursuing it. They enjoy hurting others. They enjoy the shedding of blood. They enjoy causing others to sin. What about them? The hardened, incalcitrant sinner. Well, could there have been anyone better suited to fit that description than the man we just read about, King Manasseh? the 14th king of David's inheritance and the throne of Judah. He started out young, but he was also in a position primed for spiritual success. Let me, let me tell you just briefly about the spiritual situation that King Manasseh was born into. Under his father, Hezekiah, the pull and the power of idolatry in the land, the pull and power of foreign control demanding that idolatry was broken and it led to a time of glorious revival. In fact, when you read about the revival under King Hezekiah, if you're familiar with it, one of the things that's strange about it, one of the things that stands out when you read it is that afterward, after the entire nation, like one man, turns back to God, the king and the people, they celebrate the Passover, they worship God, immediately afterward the Assyrians come and they ravage the land. It's awful. You, just, you read and wonder, why? Why does the Lord allow the Assyrians to come and attack Judah after the Jews had been so faithful to return to the Lord? We have to understand, Assyria wasn't just you know, hiding in the bushes waiting to launch a surprise attack. It wasn't unanticipated that the Assyrians would come. You see, when Hezekiah became king, he was an Assyrian vassal. What that means is he had some autonomy, his own kind, of, own kind of nation, but the Assyrians were the ones that Hezekiah had to please. And so as long as he did everything they told him to do, uh, he could govern in the land. And as an Assyrian vassal, he was obligated to pay tribute, but also was obligated to worship the Assyrian gods. 
part of the deal. We won't crush you. You pay us money and worship our gods. And so when you read in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles that all the people in the land go about destroying the altars to Baal and cutting down the Asherah poles and, and destroying the high places and the shrines. And when you read that all of the people under King Hezekiah came and returned to the Lord and restored the temple, made a covenant with God, they were doing it knowing, knowing that the Assyrians would come. They knew it was only a matter of time. And when these faithful men and women said, we will join with Hezekiah, we will join with our king, we will worship the Lord our God and celebrate his Passover, they'd already counted the cost. They returned to the Lord knowing that it would bring about the wrath of Assyria. Because if they turned their back, or they returned to the Lord, then the Assyrians would come. And the Assyrians would besiege them and kill many of them. That's what the Assyrians were known for. You go back in the history books and you say, what's the one thing the Assyrians are known for? They were really, really good at killing people. And so when you read here about all of the people coming to Passover and rejoicing before the Lord, understand, they knew what was coming. And when they went home from Passover, do you remember what you read? They go home from the Passover that they celebrated and then they start to prepare for battle. When Hezekiah sent the people away, he began building up the walls of the fortified cities. He began stocking the armories and filling the storehouses to prepare for war. He had cisterns dug in Jerusalem to prepare for a lengthy siege. This was a, a nation, an entire nation, under Hezekiah that would rather go to war and die than dishonor the Lord their God. And when the Assyrians came, that's exactly what happened. The records tell us that hundreds of thousands of faithful Jewish men and women were killed fighting because they wanted to worship the Lord their God. The whole countryside was ransacked. Forty-six towns and cities destroyed, some of them even greater fortresses than Jerusalem. You wonder what kind of effect did that have on these faithful people? They returned to the Lord, they're prepared for battle, the Assyrians come. 46 towns destroyed, 100,000 or more people killed. They didn't grumble, and they didn't waver, and they didn't question their decision at all. They didn't question God, they didn't question Hezekiah. And in chapter 33, when the guardsmen on the wall, they're being threatened with starvation, threatened with deportation, threatened with mutilation. This is... This is being threatened by the greatest empire who is leading the greatest army in the world at the time against them. They stand firm and not a single person falls back. It's not just the king or the commanders or the priests or the prophets. It's not just the leadership that's resolved, but even the conscript on the wall who may never have held a spear in his hand before. He wouldn't be intimidated by this most powerful army under the command of the most ruthless nation in the world. This was what was in the hearts of the people during the reign of Hezekiah. And you read this and you think, yeah, that's where we want to be. Right? Shoulder to shoulder with everyone that you know, ready to lay down their life, because the one thing they would rather die than endure is a return to idolatry. Few generations in the Bible were more faithful than this one during the reign of Hezekiah. And when you read about it, you think, yes, 
Right? These are the people who inherit the earth. These are the these ones who, who faced war with the greatest empire of their time. They're the ones who are going to be lining the streets of gold and guarding the gates of pearl. These, these are the faithful ones written about in Hebrews chapter 11, the examples to follow, those who, who are like the three Hebrew boys in Daniel, refused to worship the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And when he told them they would be burnt alive, they answered, Our God can deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow the knee to this idol. That was the heart of Hezekiah and the heart of all of those over whom he reigned. Which makes the national apostasy under Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, all the more tragic. All the more unbelievable and exceedingly evil. I mean, it's one thing to be born into a time of of unchecked immorality and have nothing to compare it to and then continue in it not knowing any otherwise. It is something else entirely to take a nation when the, uh, at a time when the fear of the Lord is in the ascent and use all the power that you have to crush it and to turn the people away from the Lord God. But that's exactly what happened under Manasseh. The nation did turn away. And they did it at the leading of their king. Instead of continuing the religious reforms and the revival of his father, he turned an about face and he ran as fast as he could in the opposite direction. Manasseh went about undoing every good thing his father was done. Everything that was pleasing to God, he despised. And not only did he himself despise it, he demanded with threatenings that everybody else in the nation agree with him and join him in turning against the Lord God. So what did he do? First order of action. All of the high places in the shrines, all those places that the Lord had forbidden, do not worship me here, and, and his father Hezekiah and the people had torn down, they must be rebuilt. Well, spare no expense. And once again, under every high hill and large tree in Judea, worship would be offered. But not to God. No, some of the kings in the past they allowed the high places to continue because, well, Jerusalem is far off. It's convenient for people. They're being pragmatic. Maybe it'll help the people. But we're not going to worship idols. We're going to worship God at these high places. That's not what he did. It wasn't allowing the high places to continue for convenience sake. Incense and sacrifices and sexual rituals were offered to the Baals and to the Asherah. Nothing to the Lord. They want to be accepted by the nations. They're going to need the gods of the nations. And that's who is worshipped there. And if that were not enough, to, to ensure the worship of idols, King Manasseh desecrated the temple. The nation is not going to be divided, worshipping Baal and God. But it wasn't enough for him to just shut the doors of the temple and say, no one's going in. He evicted God and turned his house into a center for idolatry. He had altars to the sun and the moon to, to create a thing erected in the very temple courts in the place that the Lord said, this is my place where I will be remembered. In the place God dwelled, at the very footstool of the Almighty, he provoked God by making people bow down to celestial balls of fire and rock. He returned the nation to paganism, a kind that allowed them to worship 
however they wanted, wherever they wanted, whoever they wanted, so long as it wasn't the Lord God. When you think about it, you realize that not much changes, does it? Today, you can worship whatever you want, however you want, whoever you want. Make yourself in whatever image you want, but you better dare not confront, question, or decry whatever anybody else has decided to do. But the one thing unforgivable to say is this is the way, walk in it. If you want to be faithful, you can't tolerate everything and affirm it and celebrate what God calls evil. I mean, this is nothing new, though. People have always created idols and demanded those idols be worshipped. That's, that's precisely what Manasseh here is doing. But it's not just in religious and ceremonial things. It's not liturgical, like he's changing the official religion of the land. And outside of the temples and the shrines, well, you can do whatever you want. It's business as usual. Nothing's really going to change. Now with this new religion comes a new morality. And it dominates the land. Manasseh leads the way and demands the country follow him. He consults necromancers and mediums. He speaks to the dead for their advice. He actively seeks the counsel of demons. He does all the things the Canaanites that were driven out before him had done. I mean, sexual immorality runs rampant in the land. Homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, incest. Uh, random sexual acts occurring all over, you name it, he does it. And he does it as a form of worshipping these twisted, false gods. You ever wonder why it's, uh, why the, the, the sexual revolution today is so adamant in its demands? It's because it's not just about pleasure, it is about worship. It is about worship. And everywhere in history it's connected to worship. Now, who is being worshipped? False gods and idols and the creation of the minds of men. Now, make no mistake, that is, it is a sacrament in the secular world. To earn even more favor from these demonic false gods, these idols, King Manasseh takes his very own son and offers him as a burnt offering in a pit. Manasseh is a murderer, and not just killing his own children, but he fills Jerusalem with the innocent, uh, with the blood of the innocent. If you cross him, he would kill you. If he wants what you have, he would murder you and your family and take it. If he was anything like the Assyrians, he tortured people sadistically for enjoyment. We're told the ground could not soak up the amount of blood that this king shed. And not only did he do it, he commended it to the people by demanding they follow his loathsome, disgusting, degraded example. And more than that, when faithful men and women were found, they were put to death. It's not enough to be so radically perverse. Every hint of righteousness that he could see and that could possibly stir his conscience, even remotely, sent him into a fit of bloodthirsty rage. When the Lord confronted Manasseh through the prophets, he had them tortured and killed. Even Isaiah, Isaiah, the great faithful messenger of God, do you know how he died? He died during the reign of King Manasseh. He warned him with prophetic authority, and when he did, so far was the fear of God from this king that he had Isaiah hung upside down by his feet and sawn in two. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that not a single day went by. 55 years, not a single day went by where the prophets and the righteous were not slain. There was no king who sold himself to do evil like King Manasseh. What's God to do with a man like this? He does what you'd expect him to do. He reinvigorates the Assyrians, an empire that only a generation ago he brought to ruin. He raises them up again to bring judgment upon King Manasseh and upon this idol-worshipping apostate generation in Judah. He utterly devastates them by sending the Assyrians against them. And King Manasseh is overthrown. And we're spared the details, but typical of the Assyrians was to torture and maim and disfigure its enemies, and certainly Judah would be no exception. The people are struck down, the king is taken captive. He who led the nation in unfettered and shameless sin, now he is the one being led away, not from God, but from Jerusalem and into captivity. He is led away in shackles and is dethroned and is humiliated because of his sin. This is the, the testimony of 2 Chronicles 33, 10 and 11. It says this, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the armies of the kings of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. You hear this and you think, good. As a fitting end, a man like this deserved no quarter. No kindness. I mean, look at what he's done. Look at the devastation he brought to God's people. Look at the blasphemy and the blood that he has shed and the abominations he's engineered. I mean, I doubt you would be able to find many kings in human history who have done more evil than Manasseh. I mean, even if a king was worse, was he raised in a time of, of revival? I mean, those Roman empires who committed genocides, did they know the Lord? Did they have the temple and the testimony and the heritage from Abraham? No, they didn't. So not only did this man drag God's people to new and depraved lows, he took them there from the heights of faithful devotion rarely achieved or seen by God's people. King Manasseh was a very bad man. And he got what he deserved when he was dragged off into captivity. God cut him off and hurled him away. That's the end of King Manasseh. Or is it? Second Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 17. Continuing on from verse 11. When he was in distress... King Manasseh. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer, outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and, 
and for the entrance into the fish gate, he carried it around Ophel and raised to a, to a very great height. He also put commanders of, our, of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he built on the mountain, on the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest. When I read about King Manasseh, I get a little bit upset. I mean, this is one of the most shocking and even offensive passages in the Bible, isn't it? It grates against our sense of justice. It grates against our sense of righteousness, doesn't it? To think that Manasseh, this wicked, evil man who, who had done so much evil that he would receive grace and mercy. I mean, I can understand God being merciful to those who at least try. I can understand God being merciful to those who try to be good enough. But him, this man who literally destroyed a nation, who had the blood of thousands on his hands, who was an enemy of God in every conceivable way, who slaughtered the faithful, committed every kind of perversity and abomination you can imagine, and then enshrined them in law and persecuted those who resisted them, him... And all he had to do was humble himself before the Lord and cry out to him in his distress. And that's it. That's all it took for God to be moved. Almost makes you angry, doesn't it? Like if Hitler, instead of killing himself, was captured and heard the gospel in prison and believed. Or Stalin or Bin Laden or any of the leaders today who are intent on leading the nation, they head deeper and deeper into every kind of evil, even inventing new ones. Can you imagine God was merciful to them? Merciful even once they were out of office and a new regime, even worse than them, enabled by them, had taken their place. And they had no power to change or do change anything that they've done, and God's merciful to them. Can you believe that? Should God forgive someone like that if they humble themselves and cry out in their distress? Or should God just close his ears and let them go? It does make your sense of justice uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because we can understand good people, relatively speaking, being saved. And we can understand ourselves who were, were sinners, but certainly never that bad being saved. And we can understand maybe God forgiving some bad people who maybe they have enough time left and enough authority to, to undo what they've done. And maybe God will be merciful so that they can go back and, and fix those things. God's gracious to them to get something out of them. None of that happened with King Manasseh, did it? He wasn't good. He wasn't even trying to be. He made no effort. And it wasn't until the whole nation was destroyed did he ever think to seek the Lord? And the Lord didn't deliver him because of what he was able to do. He didn't deliver him because he could perform some kind of penance. And you say, wait, wait a minute. No, you, you just read that after he was released, he went back and he tried to restore the worship of the Lord. Not when God saved him, he didn't. 
When he cried out in his distress, do you know where he was? He had a hook in his nose and chains on his hands and his feet, being led off as a slave to the city of Babylon. He couldn't do a good work, even if he wanted to. He couldn't undo a single thing he had done, even if he wanted to. All he could do, all that he could do was pray and cry out to the Lord for mercy. And when Manasseh did that, God heard and God answered and God was merciful and gave him the grace he asked for. Even causing his captors to look favorably upon him to allow him to go free. Of course he didn't deserve any of that. Mercy and grace, by definition, it cannot be earned and it cannot be deserved. If you begin to think that you can earn it or deserve it, you're not talking about mercy or grace anymore. I can't think of anyone more undeserving than King Manasseh. I mean, he was in the process of getting what he deserved, wasn't he? But in his distress, he turned to the Lord. And, and unlike us in our vindicative and, and unmerciful nature, God, who is, whose ways are not like ours, he hears and he forgives and he saves this man and makes his captors look favorably on him and let him return to be king in Jerusalem again. God is merciful to one of the most evil men in all of history. So to answer the question, yes, God does save bad people. God does save those who have no redeeming qualities. God does save those who have nothing to offer and nothing to give. Why? Because the, well, the reason God does it is for the same reason he says anybody. Because the whole point of salvation, listen, your salvation is not so you can serve him or so that he can get some return out of you. But sometimes you hear, you know, we're saved to serve. God didn't save you to serve him as if he needed to serve him. God didn't save the thief on the cross in order for him to be served by him. And that's not why people are saved. That's how they respond to it. But it has no bearing on their salvation. The single solitary reason you were saved, if you are saved, and anyone will be saved, is to glorify God by magnifying His grace and His mercy and His steadfast love. You'll respond to that by wanting to serve Him. But that's not why you were saved. That makes people uncomfortable, even Christians. Somewhere in us, there is this, this holdout of righteousness that we think we still have. And even if we'd never admit it, we, we, we think and reason as though our salvation is 99% God and 1% us. And so we don't boast much. And we don't think we had much to do with it. But just listen to how we talk. When we see someone striving to live a righteous life and, and seeking the truth, we say, well, these people are obviously are much closer to being saved than someone who couldn't care less. Maybe they are, but listen, the reason is not because they decided to search things. I don't think anybody was searching things out more than the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They just missed the mark in every category. But if someone is genuinely seeking the Lord, it's not because they all of a sudden decided to seek Him out. God is at work. No one seeks the Lord unless He first seeks them. And God's grace it can offend us because it means that the worst people who ever lived, they have the same standing before God as you do, as I do. 
you and I and King Manasseh are on level footing at the cross. We share common ground with the most depraved, perverse, immoral people who have ever lived. And again, we know no one deserves it. Nobody deserves it. But then we have an almost, almost have a scale of unworthiness, don't we? Is that how you think about it sometimes? Right? There are some people, yes, they're unworthy, they're undeserving, but only a little bit undeserving. And then those who are uh, others, and they're really undeserving. So it's grace alone, but some are closer to receiving it than others. It's like someone going to buy a, a $50,000 car, and one person has $48,000, and yeah, he doesn't have enough, but he's close. And then the other person comes, and not only do they not have a dollar, they owe $10,000. And, and you say, well, yet they're not near it at all. There's no way. What are they even doing here? They don't know how little they have. And we do that. Yet no one is worthy, but some are less unworthy than others. You ever think that way about grace and about salvation? About faith in Christ? It's so proud and so self-righteous and so man-centered. Because the reality, the hard truth that Manasseh exposes, uh, a truth that the hopeless and the humble rejoice in, but the proud and the self-righteous defy is that no one is worthy, no, not one, not even by a millionth of a percent righteous. It is entirely, 100% by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And until you realize that, until you understand that you have no more claim of salvation than this wicked king we've been disgusted with, that's the very nature of grace. All boasting is excluded when you realize this, isn't it? Because if God can save a person like this, a man like Manasseh, and take him and place him right next to you, it means that you and he are essentially the same. Both plucked out of the same pit and both receive the same mercy and salvation because salvation belongs not to those who strive, not to the one who is prepared, not to the one who runs, it belongs to the Lord. I want to end with a few brief points of application. What does this mean for the gospel and its power? Well, for one, we do see that sin has consequences. There are consequences for sinful actions, even if they are repented of. And the gospel doesn't always save us from those. Through repentance and through faith, it saves you from the eternal punishment of sin, but not the consequences of it in this life. A thief can be forgiven, but he still must break, repay what he owes. A murderer can be forgiven, but that doesn't mean he's going to be granted parole. A drunk driver can genuinely repent, but that won't erase the conviction. Sin has consequences. And in a way, it's like the law of gravity. You jump and you'll fall. What goes up must come down. If you wound a relationship, it's going to take work to restore it. If you break trust, that trust will have to be rebuilt. Now, now in Christ, listen, you have all of the tools necessary to rebuild that relationship and rebuild that trust and restore them. You really do, even quickly in Christ. But the rebuilding still has to happen. If you act unwisely and suffer for it, you will not bear the eternal penalty of that foolish action. But in this life, you might. God never promised to spare us from those consequences. And in Manasseh, even though we've repented, 
Genuinely. And he turned to the Lord, and he did try to undo what he had done. I mean, how else could you respond to such mercy and grace? Think of the guilt that he would have felt. He would have been doing everything he could to try to make things right. Not to earn favor from God, but because he had received it. But the consequences of his sin and the sin that he led others in still led to exile, didn't it? The consequences of a foreign oppressor being back under the thumb of Assyria, that didn't go away. The fortunes were not restored. But one of the reasons why God did this was to lead not just Manasseh, but the people to repentance. It was the consequences of Manasseh's sin that led him to repentance, wasn't it? Led him to humble himself. God brought him low. God brought him from being king to being a captive. God allowed his sin to follow its course and brought about tremendous suffering for Manasseh and for Judah. We ought to understand that the consequences of our sin ought to stand as a warning to us not to continue in them, but to turn from them before things get worse. And that's what Manasseh did. In his distress, he humbled himself greatly and fled earnestly with the Lord, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord made atonement even for evil Manasseh. Because listen, if you're taking notes, point two, nobody, nobody is beyond God's grace. No one is too far gone. Nobody's hopeless. I mean, think about what it means that God could save this man. It doesn't matter if a person is free or is a criminal. It doesn't matter if they're hard-hearted or open. It doesn't matter if they grew up in church and they know the Bible or they've never even heard the name of Jesus until now. It doesn't matter if they're trying to be good or trying to be evil. It depends on one thing. God who has mercy. That's it. And because it only depends on He who has mercy... Nobody's beyond his grasp. His arm is not too short, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through Christ, wherever they are, whoever they are. I mean, in our day, you think about it, why would anybody believe the gospel? I mean, have you ever, have you ever despaired? There are so many things vying for our attention, pulling our minds away, all the competing voices, the, the, the pull of sin, it's celebrated selfishness and the lovelessness of people and the hostility toward Christ, all of it seems to conspire to keep people out of heaven and drive them away from the Lord God. Well, that's because that's exactly what it's doing. And that's because it's what it's always been doing. And the only reason anyone ever comes to God is because God has mercy on them. This shouldn't make you anxious. God can save anyone no matter how hard or resistant, or apathetic, or immoral, they are because it depends on God, not them. you got a family member, they don't think about the Lord at all. You love them dearly. They could not care less. In fact, they're a ringleader among their, amongst their friends in doing evil. If you thought it depended on them, all you would have is reason to despair. It does not depend on them. It depends on God. And this ought to make us rejoice, shouldn't it? Because if this were not true, heaven would be empty and all mankind condemned. But because it does not depend on man who wills, but on God who has mercy, no unwillingness cannot be overcome. No evil is too great to keep somebody out, and when God opens the door to bring them in, He's bringing them in. Right? If God goes out to get somebody, He's not coming back without them. So well, how can God do this? How could God... Okay, I understand. If He's going to have mercy on him, He's going to have mercy. But 
How can God do it? How can God possibly justify saving this person? Jesus said, if anybody causes a little one to sin, let a millstone be tied around his neck and he'd be drowned in the sea. Manasseh did that with hundreds of thousands of people. Maybe a million. How can God possibly be gracious to him when he spent his entire life hating God and trying to undermine him? How can God forgive someone like Manasseh? How in heaven is God going to see him just as though he'd never sinned? He can do it because of the worth of the one, of the preciousness of the one who purchased our redemption. He can do it because of the sufficiency of the atonement of the death of Christ. And if you think small thoughts about the death of Christ, even our greatest thoughts about Christ on the cross are small in comparison to what it really was. Because Jesus didn't just die or bear sin at the cross in some abstract way. He bore your sin on the cross. He bore my sin on the cross. And He bore the sin of anyone who would ever be saved. And until you understand that, you will not understand the extent of the suffering at Calvary or the sufficiency of the work of Christ. If you don't understand it, you won't love Him as you ought. Your love will always be smaller than it should be. He bore Manasseh's sin. Do you have any idea what that means? It means that Jesus was treated. You think, man, what? King Manasseh, imagine you're the judge. You've got to sentence him. I mean, the only question you're asking is how hard can I throw this book at him? Right? Jesus was treated not only as the idolater, but as the one who forbids the worship of God and fires the temple. He was condemned as one who burns God's holy word and slaughters his people and the prophets. The savior of God's people was treated there as the slayer of God's people. And, and, and in the, all of the ire that you might have to a particular political leader because of, of the severity of their sin, how great is it to lead so many astray? How worse was it for Manasseh? Took people from the height of revival and reform down to the very lowest Worse than the Canaanites who were driven out of the land. Christ bore his sin and was treated there on the cross as the idolater who leads God's people astray, away from God and into paganism. What about the shedding of innocent blood? The innocent blood of Christ was shed, but shed as one who slaughters the innocent. And he was cursed for the sins of King Manasseh. Cursed as one who enjoys and seeks after and wearies themselves going after every kind of perverted sexual desire and sacrifices their own sons and daughters to demons. Jesus died that kind of death. The death that those people deserve. Jesus died for people who are very bad. So that the grace of his love and his mercy would be greatly exalted. It's one thing to die for people who are trying to be good enough. It's something to die for people who are not good at all. That to demonstrate God's love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To demonstrate the mercy of God's love. And... And don't forget this, because 
he really does love his people, even Manasseh. He loved him. There's no conflict between God's glory and his love. God is glorified in his selfless, sacrificial love. God saved Manasseh because to glorify his name, yes, and to glorify his love. Because what kind of love would lead someone to die for a man like that? His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Reminds me of a story I heard of a young girl in South America. She's very attractive, wanted to go to the city. It was an opportunity in the city, but her mother wouldn't let her go. Her mother knew what would happen to an attractive, naive girl once she went to the city, drugs and prostitution. Well, one day, her mother was out working, and when she came home, she discovered that the daughter was gone. She run off, and the mother knew. The mother knew where she went, and so she took all of her money, went, bought a bus ticket. And then after she got the bus ticket, she went with all the money she had left to a, a photo shop, and she had a picture of herself taken, and she got as many copies as she could afford. And then she went to the, the city, took the bus into the city, and she knew where her daughter would be. She went to all of the worst places, the brothels, the dens, the drug houses, and she went into the bathrooms and she put her picture in the corner of the mirrors. When she ran out of picture, she got back on the bus and came home. One day, many months later, her daughter, who had aged years by this point, who had become a drug addict and a prostitute, just like the mother had feared, she went into one of the bathrooms, rinsed her face. There in the corner of the mirror, she couldn't believe it. It was a picture in the corner of the mirror of her mother. And so she, she picks it up and she looks at it and says, that's, that's my mother. What's this doing here? She turns it around. And there on the back, a scrawled, handwritten note. It said, I do not care where you have been. I do not care what you have done. I love you. Come home. God loves his people. And it doesn't matter how terrible their sin or how prolonged it has been. It doesn't matter your good works or your bad ones. It doesn't matter if you have nothing at all left to give. Nobody does. He wants to be gracious to you. His desire is for you to forgive you. He wants you. And your sin is not more powerful to condemn than Christ's love is powerful to save if you're a Christian, and if you put your trust in Him, in humility, my prayer for you this morning is that you would look to Christ and love Him all the more and be thankful for the mercy He had towards you. That will carry you through a lot of dark days and challenges, knowing what Christ has done. And if you don't know Him and you haven't put your faith in Him, then go to Him. You're not too bad. Now you might be proud, and you might be bad, but you're not too bad to come. And God will forgive and redeem those, all of those who come to him through Christ. You say, I don't have it figured out. It's all right, you don't have to. You say, I don't know how to make anything better first. You can't. You say, I've got to clean things up first. Only Christ can do that. So I'm not good enough. Well, you're right. But Christ came to save 
sinners. He came to save not those who were well, but those who were sick, didn't he? People like you and people like me. So go to the one who loves you and gave himself for you and give yourself to him. He came for you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful this morning to your people who you love and gave yourself for. Lord, you love them. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that nobody would think that they were good enough, and no one would think that they are too bad. Lord, your grace can save the wickedest man who has probably ever lived. And if you can save him, Lord, who can't you save? Nobody is beyond your grace, and nobody is beyond your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would extend your mercy this morning, that anyone here, Lord, if they don't know you, that they would call on your name and be saved, that you would give them the grace to come. Thank you, Lord, that you're willing to save those who come to you. And I thank you that you were willing to come and save, Lord, me. You didn't have to. You shouldn't have. Certainly none of us deserved it. But to magnify your mercy and grace, because the magnification of your mercy and grace and steadfast love is the goal, Lord, then nobody can out your grace. Thank you, Lord, that there is more grace in Christ than sin in us. Help us to believe it. And Lord, to give ourselves in service to you, not because we're trying to earn something or rest from your hands, but Lord, because it is the only appropriate response to one who has redeemed us and given himself for us. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.